A Germanwings Airbus A320 is flying from France to Germany when the plane crashes in the French Alps. What caused this flight to descend into a mountain? Trigger warning. We talk about suicide, murder, depression, and anxiety on this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. Today we have August Susan Stanton. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. August, uh, August is a friend of ours from band, but is also a mental health professional. And so we actually have them here as a mental health professional primarily. So yeah. we will get into that. I am assuming y'all heard the trigger warning at the beginning of this episode. That should make a lot of sense. Again... If any of that triggers you, please, please skip this episode. Thank you. Thanks. And also, we probably sound really different this time. Yeah, because we got new equipment. We are running on brand new equipment. Finally, <laughs> this week. Everything's new. The mixer, the microphones, the stands. So uh, bear with us while we still get set and everything. But yeah. it already sounds different, but good. I, yeah. I like that it. being said, we are also wearing masks. So keep that in mind. <laughs> yes. So that is a thing. Um and also, I don't know if you wanted to introduce yourself a little sure. more. Yeah, I can. Um, I'm August. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm an overachiever, so I got nice. two licenses. Awesome. <laughs> um, hey, I work in private practice part-time. I'm the program director at Denver Family Institute, which is a marriage and family therapy training program. And I'm at Children's Hospital in the neurology clinic. So nice. Part-time. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Along the way, because I know you don't know the whole depth of everything we're going to talk about in this. Mm -hmm. If you have any questions, please, please feel free to stop and ask, because we we look for any chance where somebody who doesn't know what's going on to ask those questions to definitely ask, just because we, we want to make sure we clarify everything. And great. also, it might be something our listeners are asking about, too. So it's exactly. Always, it's always nice to have someone who's not 100% in the know. Yes. To ask. Now, that said, all of us here today have a role this time because the three of us that you hear normally all know about this accident. Very well. And then we brought in a professional to handle things that we are not qualified to talk about. Yes. So. <laughs> that makes me sound way fancier than I am. That's okay. Hey, it's cool. So we appreciate it. And this is going to be a fun episode. But before that, let's do some housekeeping. Yeah. So thank you to the following new patrons, Alyssa, Matt, Ben, Maybe. I thought we I thought we thanked Ben. We might have. If oh, we thanked we you before, if we thanked you before. Thank you again. You're getting another thanks. <laughs> uh, actually, we might have thanked everybody, but just in case we didn't, uh, Megan and Kylie. Thanks, Tiernan. <laughs> yes, thanks. Thank you all. Yes, thank you for being patrons. Thank you for joining Patreon. Thank you to all our patrons. You guys are amazing and awesome. So yes. Also, thank you if you came back. Like if you left and came back. I know there was a few of you that did that. I don't know on the top of my head who it was, but thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. <laughs> and also, if you ever need to leave for any reason, that's okay too. Yes, we're not going to get mad at you. Never. Also, you <laughs> never have to tell us. <laughs> Some of you like email us and like, I'm so sorry. I'm, you don't need to say sorry. You, we get it. I'm we, sure there's a good reason. You we, don't have to say sorry. We appreciate whatever contribution you've ever given to us. And that's said and done. Anybody else who's listening? Thanks. Thanks for listening. Yeah. It helps. Thank you for being a listener. You will get set your ducks, by the way. We got a bunch more orders for ducks. 
we will send them to you eventually. You're going to drain our bank account because <laughs> we have to pay for postage. So we'll probably potentially wait till next month to send them to you just so we recuperate. <laughs> but they will come. I but promise. they will they come. Will, they will Are be on these, their way. Thank you to the person who sent us a photo of your decks. Yes. Yes. They did email us a photo. Thank you. Thank that you. We know that you got it. We, we want that to happen so we know you get your stuff. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's it for housekeeping. So. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering German Wings Flight 9525. Thank you to Ashton for recommending this accident. Yes, this one's going to be a deep one. This is not an accident. It is so, an intentional incident. I definitely feel like a lot of people know this one, so it's not really much of a surprise for most of our listeners, probably. It didn't, it happened not that long ago. No, this was in, this was on March 24th of 2015, so yeah, it wasn't that long ago. And we're going to dive in deep, but it is obviously a deep episode, so this is going to be kind of heavy. Another trigger warning. Just in case. If you... Are triggered, are triggered by suicide. By suicide, depression, talks about mental health stuff. This is not the episode for you. Yes. I can also talk about some resources at the end of the podcast. Yes. That would be excellent. Much appreciated. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. This was an Airbus A320 with the tail number Delta-Alpha India Papa X-Ray. This was a flight from Barcelona in Spain to Dusseldorf in Germany. The captain for today's flight was Patrick Sondenheimer. He's 34 years old. He had 6,763 hours total, of which 3,811 hours were on the Airbus. So he had more than half of his hours on the Airbus, which is pretty good. That's, I mean, that's that's experience, that's for sure. Meanwhile, first officer. The first officer was Andreas Lubitz. He was 27 years old. He had 919 hours total, of which 540 hours were on the Airbus. So the majority of his hours were also on the Airbus, but he didn't have very much experience, period. So did Germany not put in place the 1500 hour rule? I was just going to ask that. That is my theory at this time. I honestly haven't looked into this, but that's all I can surmise is he was legally licensed to fly this airplane. I mean, he was qualified per German regulation. So yes, at the time, they must not have had this 1500 rule. And today, I don't know if they do either. But honestly, I haven't spent any time looking into that because it is not honestly really all that pertinent this time. In Spain, so once it got to Barcelona, the the flight took on 144 passengers to go along with the six crew for a total of 150 people on board the airplane. The crew had flown the plane from Dusseldorf that morning to Barcelona, departing at 7 a.m., 7.01 a.m., arriving at 8.57 a.m. into Barcelona. Flight 9525 departed from Barcelona's 07 right at 10 a.m. local time. The first officer was to be the pilot flying while the captain was to be the pilot monitoring for this flight. The auto thrust was engaged shortly after takeoff, and at 10.02 a.m. and 54 seconds, so within three minutes of takeoff, the autopilot was also engaged in the nav and climb modes. 10.12 a.m. and 15 seconds. While still in a climb, the buzzer for the cockpit door sounded for one second. It was the lead cabin crew member. The captain let her into the cockpit, and the three crew members now in the cockpit then discussed how the short stopover in Barcelona had been, and what the expected delay was arriving into Dusseldorf. Not much explanation on why they were running a little bit behind, but they were about 30 minutes behind schedule. 
There are different depictions. So we watched the Air Disasters episode, but I can't necessarily back up whatever they said in Correct. the episode because I cannot find the CBR transcript. Correct. Oh, okay. Also, I feel like in the Even episode, if you did, they probably it probably wouldn't be in English. Right. would be my guess. Also, in the episode, I feel like they put a few things a little bit out of order in the sequence of events here because this happens, she leaves, and there's quite a bit of a period of time before everything else transpires. They made it sound like... It happened like that. It did not. So she came into the cockpit within a few minutes, within 12 minutes of takeoff, basically. 10.15 a.m. and 53 seconds, the cabin crew member left the cockpit. The flight crew then discussed the delay and how to manage time to arrive a little bit earlier, closer to their on-time schedule. 10.27 a.m. and 20 seconds, the aircraft level off at a cruising altitude of flight level 380, or 38,000 feet. So now we're 27 minutes beyond takeoff. At that time, the crew was in contact with the Marseille En Route Control Center. Marseille, France. France yes, France. Yes. The air traffic controller then gave the flight clearance to fly direct to the IRMAR waypoint. I-R-M-A-R. So this is a waypoint along their route that is the last point along their, basically their departure, where they need to talk to air traffic controllers. And then from there, it's just pretty much direct to their approach for Dusseldorf. So there's not much they need to do between Irmar and all the way into Germany. This is basically the last time they would really need to talk to air traffic control before they're kind of on their own for a while. This waypoint, however, is over the French Alps. At 10.30 a.m., the captain read back the clearance to Irmar. 10.30 a.m. and 11 seconds, the airplane made a small left turn to 23 degrees to head directly toward Irmar. 10.30 a.m. and 53 seconds, the airplane suddenly began descending from its cruising altitude, and the engines decreased in power. 10.33 a.m. and 12 seconds, the aircraft's speed began increasing, along with the descent rate. 10.33 a.m. and 47 seconds, the airplane was at about 30,000 feet when the air traffic controller noticed the decreasing altitude and requested the flight's assigned cruising altitude, but there was no response from the flight. The air traffic controller tried to contact the flight two more times over the next 30 seconds. Still no response. At 10.34 a.m. and 23 seconds, the aircraft's speed again began increasing from 301 knots to 323 knots. 10.34 a.m. and 38 seconds, the air traffic controller tried again to reach the flight. 10.34 and 27 seconds, the flight was at 25,100 feet when an air traffic controller tried to contact them on the previous frequency that they had been communicating on, so a different frequency. 10.35 a.m. and 3 seconds, the aircraft speed again increased, now this time to 350 knots, which was the max service speed of the aircraft. Between 10.35 a.m. and 7 seconds and 10.37 a.m. and 54 seconds, the air traffic controller tried to contact the flight five more times on two other frequencies used by the control center, but no response. Between 10.38 a.m. and 38 seconds and 10.39 a.m. and 23 seconds, a French air defense controller, so basically their air force, tried to contact the flight three times on the frequency that they last communicated from, but no response. 10.39 a.m. and 54 seconds, another aircraft in the area of the flight tried to make contact with the flight to relay communications to the air traffic controllers, but still, no response from flight 9525. 10.40 a.m. and 41 seconds, some time has passed now. The ground proximity warning system began sounding an alarm in the cockpit. Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up as the airplane was now descending dangerously low into the Alps. Fifteen seconds later, the master caution warning and the master warning began going off in the cockpit. 10.41 a.m. and six seconds, 
The aircraft collided with a mountainside in the French Alps in the municipality of prades haute billion at an altitude of 1,550 meters in an area away from civilization. The aircraft disintegrated on impact with the mountain from having hit at such a high rate of speed. The debris had been scattered all over the side of the mountain, which was a treacherous and steep part of the mountain, where much of it had been spread into two separate ravines. The largest pieces of debris were just three to four meters in length, but most were very small, around the size of a sheet of paper. Search and rescue found the site within an hour of the accident and began securing the site and recovering the wreckage. It was quickly apparent that all of the 150 people on board unfortunately perished in this crash, making this the deadliest aircraft crash on French soil in over 30 years. It was a very grisly crash site, and among the passengers were 16 students and two teachers that were returning to Germany from an exchange program in Spain. There were many personal items such as teddy bears and dolls found among the wreckage and were put in a separate area from the aircraft debris. This made the wreckage recovery a difficult and emotional one for search and rescuers. The human aspect was particularly heavy in this accident. Yeah. Oof. <sighs> a lot happened there, and, you know, I talked about it really quickly, but there's a lot to unpack now. Yes, there is. As with any investigation in France, this was a dual investigation. The BEA launches a technical investigation, and the French judicial system launches a criminal investigation to determine liability, and the two teams must collaborate beginning to end. Normally, I'm used to getting more quote-unquote rabbit hole descriptions from the analysis section of the report, but the BEA got right to the point, so you'll have to indulge me as I take most of this part from the Air Disasters episode, which we've already proven is oh so accurate. One of the first suspicions, given that this was the Alps, was weather. As we here in Colorado know, weather is a whole new beast when you throw mountains into the equation. As wind comes off of mountain ranges, weather can take all sorts of turns at a moment's notice, making flying over them potentially hazardous. But when investigators reviewed meteorological data from the time of the crash, they found perfect flying conditions. The next suspicion actually came as a result of the ongoing situation in France. In January of that year, the Ile-de-France region of France was plagued with four different Al-Qaeda-sponsored shooting events, taking the lives of 17 victims. French locals were worried about this accident being an escalation and wanted to know if there was any evidence of explosives. It's not that the investigators didn't test for residue or anything like that, but investigators ruled out the explosives the same day as the accident for two reasons. One, the wreckage was in very tiny pieces in a very concentrated area. As proven by the Lockerbie bombing in episode 113, a bombing would result in larger pieces spread out over a larger area. Yeah. Two, the radar track, which investigators were given promptly after the crash, showed no evidence of an in-flight breakup, but more importantly showed a steady and controlled descent from cruise altitude all the way to impact, albeit at a very high speed. Along those lines, investigators interviewed the Marseille air traffic controllers who revealed that after passing the waypoint, they never heard anything else from Flight 9525. In fact, they called out 11 separate times and also asked nearby aircraft to relay messages, but nothing ever came of those. Another prominent suspicion that fit both the controlled descent and lack of response was a loss of cabin pressure and subsequent loss of consciousness. We saw this with Helios Flight 522 in episode 73. If the crew had realized that there was a loss of cabin pressure, they may have sent the flight into a descent but lost consciousness, as that only takes about 10 to 15 seconds when you're at 38,000 feet, and they may have never recovered. Was there anything in the maintenance logs to support that theory? No. There was something about a left nose gear door 
the previous day. But that isn't pressurized anyway, so it wouldn't be relevant. Nope. Coming to the end of a long day of analyzing the preliminary investigation, investigators were alerted of a new lead. The cockpit voice recorder had been found. It was not in great shape, however, but it was immediately sent to Paris for the BEA to analyze in-house, because they can do that. Well, also, Airbus is a French company. Yeah. Yes. The data from the CVR came back fairly quickly despite the damage, and this is where the rabbit holes end. The beginning of the flight was fairly routine. First officer was the pilot flying, and the captain was the pilot monitoring. They ran through the checklist perfectly, took off perfectly, and made it to cruise altitude with no problem. Twelve minutes after takeoff, the flight attendant requested entry and discussed the stop in Barcelona. Flight was cleared to fly to the Irmar waypoint, and then the captain left the cockpit to use the restroom. Pretty normal. Yep. And he told the first officer to man the radio, which the first officer agreed to. It was at this point that the plane began descending according to the radar track, and the cockpit was completely silent. No alarms, and the first officer was breathing normally, so the possibility of hypoxia went down. Then the air traffic control calls started coming in, asking why the plane was descending, and the first officer never responded. Less than a minute later, the buzzer, or essentially doorbell, for the cockpit sounded. The captain wanted back in while the controller is still trying to make contact. At this point, the plane had already descended from 38,000 feet down to 25,000 feet. Now the captain was trying to call using the flight attendant's interphone, and he actually called four separate times. In the background, the captain was heard through the door, asking for the door to be opened. Air traffic control is still calling. Then violent blows against the door were heard, assumedly with the emergency act from the cabin area. Other planes are now at this point trying to hail the accident flight. At 10.40 and 41 seconds, the warning was heard and continued through the rest of the flight. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Pull up. Not long after, the master caution warning was heard and remained active for the rest of the flight. Now, the possibility for hypoxia wasn't gone, but another possibility became much more viable. Did the first officer crash the plane on purpose? <sighs> At this point, the French prosecutor handling the criminal investigation had a press conference and deemed that this was the most likely explanation, which prompted airlines around the world to make rule changes to require two pilots to be in the cockpit within hours of the press conference. Mm. They all jumped in on it. But investigators so hoped that they hadn't had that press conference just yet. Because of the press conference, any attempts to contact the first officer's friends and family were fruitless. No one would speak to them. Reporters went to the local flying club that the first officer flew at, and all of his fellow pilots said that he was calm, responsible. French authorities contacted the German authorities, who then raided his apartment for evidence and found ample amounts of documentation and emails relating to his medical history, which I will get to in just a second. The flight data recorder was found on April 2nd, also in bad condition, but it revealed the final nail in the coffin, proving how intentional this was. Just seconds after the captain left the cockpit, the first officer set the autopilot to fly to the altitude of 100 feet, and after making several adjustments to speed, ultimately set it to the maximum operating speed of 350 knots. Not only did it show that, but the flight data recorder also recorded the previous flight, which the captain had also left the cockpit for at some point, and the first officer had done a dry run. He had been cleared to descend to 21,000 feet by air traffic control and actually set the altitude selector to a variety of other altitudes from 49,000 feet down to 100 feet, but turned it to the cleared 21,000 feet before the captain re-entered the cockpit. He rehearsed his murder-suicide. 
Investigators were given the first officer's training records and delved deep into those. In September of 2008, the first officer began his basic training at the Lufthansa Flight Training Pilot School in Bremen, Germany. For those of you who are not aware, German Wings is actually part of the Lufthansa group. So yes. that makes sense. Two months later, on November 5th, he suspended his training for medical reasons before restarting in August of 2009. Well, that, I mean, that's not totally weird. No. But why did he stop for so long? Investigators reviewed his medical certificates and found the answer. In April of 2008, he received a Class 1 medical without restrictions that was valid for a year. The day it expired, it was not revalidated due to depression and the taking of medication to treat it. He had been seeing a psychiatrist for depression who anticipated the illness to last for several months. In July of 2009, he requested the renewal again, but was refused after admitting he had been to a hospital. And the refusal included that he needed analysis from a specialist. Two weeks later, he got it with the note. Note the special conditions slash restrictions of the waiver and then a bunch of codes, which remained on his license in some fashion until the crash. This basically meant that the medical certificate could be revoked if he relapsed into his depression. His private pilot's license didn't have any limitations, but his multi-crew pilot's license had the limitation, quote, specific regular medical examinations contact the license issuing authority, end quote, which requires that the aeromedical examiner contact the license authority before proceeding with a medical evaluation about extension or renewal of a medical certificate. All of the aeromedical examiners who examined him during this time were aware of his history of depression and assessed him accordingly, and nothing raised their concern. Now, August. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could you define exactly what depression is, and is it possible that he hid it all that time? So it is very possible to hide depression. Depression oh. occurs on a spectrum, meaning sometimes depression can look really mild, sometimes it can be really severe, and in the case of this pilot, lead to suicidality. And depression is diagnosable after a series of symptoms are present for two weeks. And these are symptoms like lack of motivation, lack of energy, negative self-talk, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of hopelessness. Suicidal thoughts can be present, but don't have to be. It's diagnosable after two weeks. For some folks, it becomes chronic. For, for some folks, it's seasonal. For other folks, it's just a brief period of time, which is why depression is tricky, because when we say depression, it can mean a whole crap load of things. Yeah. It's, I think, one of the most common, if not the most common, mental health concern in the U.S. at least. And I, I would imagine it's, it's comparable in other places yeah. as well. Yeah, I think I read fair. somewhere in the report that it affects like 10% of the population. Which is huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. That is enormous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's treatable by meds. There are multiple classes of medication that treat depressions and most do so pretty successfully. Medications are tough because it's a sore spot for a lot of folks. Being on a medication has a stigma. Going to see a psychiatrist can be daunting. And a lot of folks have concerns on am I able to be on this for a short time or am I going to be on this the rest of my life? It's a pretty scary thought. Depression and anxiety are often diagnosed together and antidepressants can treat both. I mean, gosh, like hearing this, it's just so intense. You know, that's a good start. Okay. <laughs> that's good. That's good. We yeah. can obviously, we'll chit chat deeper about it here in a yep. little bit. Sure. So investigators, I'm not entirely sure how this came about. It probably said it somewhere. I didn't go too deep digging for it, but they got a hold of at least some medical records. In November of 2014, we'll call Private Physician A put the co-pilot on sick leave for a week. They can do that. In December, 
The first officer began experiencing symptoms relating to a possible psychotic depressive episode and consulted several doctors, including the psychiatrist who had prescribed him antidepressants. Specifically, he was concerned that he was losing his eyesight, though several eye specialists all came to the same conclusion that there was no organic reason for it. Side note, he did all this without telling aeromedical examiners who could have stopped him from flying with this knowledge. Yeah, if you can't see, um, that's a problem. Really shouldn't be flying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. but they but they basically said we think you've made it up or right. you're causing it on your own. Yeah, they think this was it's not- like a, a a psycho. What's it called? Psychosomatic. Yes, psychosomatic. <laughs> I'm like, there's a word. There is a word. There's a word. Yeah. So now now I come to another moment of I don't know what this is. What exactly does a psychotic depressive episode mean? And is it obvious to someone who's not looking for it? Great. So I just turned to that page in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual Edition 5. This is the main book that mental health providers use to classify and diagnose folks with mental health disorders. Been around for a while. When I asked my therapist if I, if I had ADHD, he's like, I don't know, let's look. Opens the giant book. Yep. Yeah, that the is, DSM. That is a thing. And let me tell you, it's it's a little intimidating, but it's so handy. <laughs> it's so handy. So That's fair. Depression with psychotic features means that delusions and or hallucinations are present. So delusions are beliefs that are not true and spans the gamut. Thinking of things like the people in the TV are communicating with me or I am a, a religious figure or a god or like it, anything that you are not. Hallucinations are auditory or, or visual, vi- visual mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The auditory ones are a little bit more intense because they can do things like tell people to kill themselves, kill other people, hurt themselves. And of course, the visual hallucinations are seeing, seeing things that aren't there. With depression, there, there are two categories. One is with mood congruent psychotic features. So it means that the delusions and, and, and hallucinations are consistent with the typical depressive themes, personal inadequacy, guilt, disease, death, deserved punishment, um, mood incongruent psychotic features is, it literally says here, does not involve the typical depressive themes of personal inadequacy, guilt, disease, death, or deserved punishment. And I think I can fairly say that the first officer in this instance probably took his perceived losing of eyesight to be a fault it would cause him to lose his license. So, right. Potentially. Situations like this are super, super complicated. Yeah. No, I get it. Um, yes. And I, I, I can see how a perceived loss of eyesight when you're pilot. My cousin, who is a was a military pilot working on becoming a commercial pilot, told me today that, and you, you may know this already, you've been doing this, flying to a pilot is life. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. You're all like, uh huh. <laughs> I got it. Right. Yes, right. it is. Yeah. And so it would make sense to me that a perception of losing your eyesight would be devastating. Absolutely. Um, or losing anything that would cause you that, to not be able to fly, which is basically almost anything. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much. So I mean, it it, w- it would make a lot of sense. I mean, I, I, you know, if this was person was my client, I have a lot. I would have a lot of questions. But a diagnosis of depression with psychotic features is very much a thing. Okay. Let's continue with the medical history. In February, a month before the accident, private physician B issued a sick leave certificate for eight days. This was not forwarded to German wings, meaning that the time off was not taken. Private physician C diagnosed a psychosomatic disorder and an anxiety disorder, prescribed Zopiclone as a sleep aid, put the first officer on sick leave for three days, and referred the first officer to a psychotherapist and psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist prescribed mirtazapine, an antidepressant. 
I hope I'm pronouncing all of those yeah, correct. Yeah. So let, let's yes. take let's take a, a quick like reflection here. Uh-huh. He has seen now four professionals. That's just the recorded ones. Just the recorded ones. Three of them have put him on sick leave. And he has ha- now been put on now- a sedative? Yes. And an antidepressant. So putting that all in perspective, like clearly there is something wrong. I don't go through all of the doctors that he sees, and neither do the investigators. I talk about it later because it's in the findings. But I think he saw a total of 41. Yes, it's like 40 or 41 professionals. Within a couple months. And there's no evidence to say that they all knew about each other. Right. And that that is so common. It's called splitting. Great. Mm -hmm. And it would make a lot of sense to me that... Says someone who flying is their life. They don't want other professionals to know the other. Prof- they want a second, third, right. fourth, fourth, opinion. first opinion. Yeah, that's or seems- to see if you know, or they can right, or different kind of care from each uh-huh. person, or wanting each person to say something different to the military. It makes sense. That makes sense. On March 9th, private physician D issued a sick leave certificate with no known end date, and that was never forwarded to German Wings. On March 10th, a day later, private physician C going back. Diagnosed possible psychosis and recommended a psychiatric hospital. Probably not something someone wanted to hear. And issued a 19-day sick leave certificate that was never forwarded to German Wings. On March 16th, the psychiatrist further prescribed escitalopram. Mm-hmm. Nice. So escitalopram, or Lexapro as it is often known as, is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI, which is for depression and anxiety. Mm. He was also prescribed Zolpidem. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> These might be like more local medications. Possibly. Two, yeah. It is a sedative for insomnia. So now he's on two sedatives. For insomnia, which means he's having trouble sleeping too. Yep. Which isn't great for a pilot too. Because nope. you can't be fatigued while you're flying. Not that's at when all. stuff. There's, there's laws Problems that. that happen, yeah. Well, and having any kind of insomnia, I mean... The more often you go without sleep, the more likely you are, my understanding anyways, to develop more of these. To hallucinate. Right, to hallucinate (laughs) and develop a lot more of these, like, mental issues. Yep. Neither of those two professionals informed any aviation authority nor anyone else about the first officer's mental state, despite probably knowing his profession. On March 18th, private physician E put the pilot on sick leave for five days. What you may have noticed through all of that is that none of the healthcare professionals were contacting the airline or aeromedical examiners, but rather relied upon the patient, the first officer, to make the self-declaration to his employers. This is because the doctor-patient confidentiality laws are so strict and stringent in Germany, any violations against that carry huge penalties against the doctor, including imprisonment and losing the right to practice medicine. Sure. Quote, Legal frameworks in most countries allow doctors to breach medical confidentiality and warn authorities if the disclosure of personal information would lessen or prevent a serious and or imminent danger or a threat to public safety. In some countries like Canada, Israel, and Norway, it is even compulsory for healthcare providers to do so, even without the consent of the patient. A survey conducted by the BEA shows that the absence of formal definition of imminent danger and threat to public safety drive doctors to adopt a conservative approach. They will not report any medical information to authorities until there is an obvious and unequivocal threat to third parties or to the patient himself. They adopt such a position not only because they are strongly attached to the principle of preserving their patient's trust, but also because they fear being sued, exposed to sanctions from judicial authorities, and or losing their right to practice medicine, end quote. Which, like, that's, like, the safe thing to do. 
is like unless you know for sure that it's going to be a problem teachers do the same thing yeah but it's also where do you draw that line that's kind of what is all in the question well and a lot of the question is too how many of them knew that he was actually a pilot like yeah yeah did he disclose that i mean well he did to a few of them because he told that they put him on sick leave yep right but i'm sure he didn't say it to all 40 professionals he saw yeah probably not so now we come to another question it's in some ways kind of obvious in some ways not why didn't the first officer self-declare his condition First off, he had altered mental abilities due to the psychiatric disorder and possible psychotic depressive episode, leading to a probable loss of connectedness with reality and a lack of discernment. He just didn't have good judgment. No. Secondly, there was also a huge financial burden that would have come if the first officer lost his ability to fly. He had to pay 60,000 euros for his training, and he took out a 41,000 euro loan to do so. In the event that a pilot loses their license, there is such thing as a loss of license or LOL insurance. (laughs) Wow. That's so bad. (laughs) What a thing. I know. Contracted by German Wings that would have provided, in this instance, a 58,799 euro one-time payment if he had become permanently unfit to fly in the first five years of employment. Great. So why is there an issue? Well, he didn't have that insurance. And an email he wrote in December of 2014, when the psychosis began showing, shows that he was having issues getting the insurance because of the waiver attached to his medical certificate. Mm. So it was because it was already a known thing? On his certificate. He could, it's like having a uh, pre-existing condition. condition. Yeah. Wow. They wouldn't give him the insurance. Which is crap, but I mean, it it's crap. also a factor. Yeah. Yes. It's like he can't lose his license because then he'll have to pay back that entire loan without an income. Lastly, losing his license and ability to fly would destroy his professional ambitions, both in terms of salary and finances, but also in terms of prestige. Being a pilot is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Investigators called into question the dependability of self-declaration. Putting the responsibility of self-declaration in the hands of someone taking psychoactive substances or suffering from psychotic episodes obviously doesn't go well, nor should it be anticipated to do so. Furthermore, pilots are known for their high motivation— passion for flying, and need for achievement. Losing their right to fly would be difficult not only on finances, but also self-esteem, social recognition, and job motivation. Quote, The potential impact in terms of safety may be underestimated by pilots who may overestimate their ability to compensate their decrease in fitness. End quote. To combat this, other industries have found alternatives to promote and encourage self-declaration. For example, and an odd example, the nuclear industry in France... Okay. (laughs) Will offer an employee found to be unfit an alternative job with the same salary. That's impressive. Yeah. And phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So that means like if you have an issue, your finances won't be affected. If you you have a mental health issue, do something about it. Hmm. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. In certain countries such as Australia, the UK, Canada, and the good old US of A, there are means to return to flying while having a diagnosis of depression. This includes specific medical assessments, a list of accepted medication, including SSRIs, clinical reviews, and requirements for stabilities. Studies have shown these to be beneficial to flight safety as it allows closer monitoring without grounding the pilot for an excessively long time, thereby promoting self-declaration. So if you have a condition, you won't be not flying forever. There, there's solutions. And by having those solutions, you are more likely to report that you have a mental health issue. Or physical issue, for that matter. The last bit of analysis was in regards to the security of the cockpit door. 
Obviously, since 9-11, many security measures have been introduced to the cockpit door systems, but these were designed and regulated assuming the threat came from outside the cockpit. Right. A security threat inside the cockpit was not fully considered, and it was assumed arguably correctly that a threat from the outside is much more of a risk. Quote, the risk of terrorist attack was considered to be more threatening than pilot suicide. End quote. It's difficult for something as simple as a door to protect from both scenarios. So the EASA, which is like the FAA for Europe, issued a safety information bulletin or SIB recommending that airlines have at least two crew in the cockpit at all times. And for many airlines and countries, that is still in effect today. And we will talk about that a bit later. Investigators also suggested a series of door designs to help in these situations, including pre-programmed fingerprints for flight crew to gain access to the cockpit in case of emergency, having a key on the flight deck that you take with you when you go to the bathroom, etc. You get the idea. However, the BEA did not make any official safety recommendations concerning the cockpit door, only because the threat of external attack from outside the cockpit is still more threatening than this particular scenario. Yeah. Well, and the whole two-person-in-the-cockpit rule... Applies to so if you ever fly in the U.S., it happens or most anywhere. Well, yeah, yeah, but I I mean we live here, right? So if you've ever seen a pilot when they have to go to the bathroom, they blockade the front of the plane with one of the yeah the the rolling carts. Yes, the food carts. The food cart. Those are heavy. So good luck. That way, if someone tries to bomb rush the front of the plane when that happens, they can't just get straight to the cockpit but there's usually a set of cabin crew up there one of them will go in in place of whoever has to go to the bathroom (laughs) and then they'll switch out when they're done right which is super simple to do because the pilot that is currently on the flight deck can fly the airplane and usually it's on autopilot so So that's all i got we'll get more into existing systems and such here after the break when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. We're back. So this is my usual part whenever we do these, and I'm aware of it, for findings, recommendations, causes, etc. So a lot of these, just so you know, August, mm-hmm. is like an overview of what we covered. And then some the things initial. we decided not to cover. We'll talk, touch it briefly. Sure. So there's a lot of these. I didn't do all of them from the report. And a lot of them I condensed into one because it was like three separate ones. And I'm like, all of those talk about the same thing <laughs> so yeah. yep but because of the medical issues of the first and, officer yeah that it talks a lot about that so it's a lot about his mental state and yes stuff of course for I the can findings imagine. So. i can imagine so the first one usually we don't have this in here but i feel like it's important to have anyway is a review of the fdr and cvr data brought to light that no aircraft system failures or faults that could have been contributed to the accident so this plane was in perfect working order yeah nothing maintenance-wise or anything, was the reason for the plane crashing. Right. This was a solid airplane. Yes. A depressive episode and the taking of medication to treat it delayed the renewal of the co-pilot's Class 1 medical certificate between April and July of 2009. Did you want to talk about what a Class 1 medical entails? So in aviation, there's three classes of medicals. There's more than that in reality. But in the United States, there's three classes. 
class three is where you'd usually start. And if you're just flying for fun, this is where you'd usually start. Now we have basic med, which doesn't even require you to actually have a full-on medical exam anymore. But class three, two, and one all require you to have some level of medical exam by a professional who's licensed by the FAA. The class three medical is for those usually with private pilot and instrument rating who so just like, want to fly for fun or so like just Brendan and your dad both have those. Right. Yes. They have those. They have a class three. Class two is usually used for charter and smaller operations. If you're not doing anything major, that's where you would kind of sit is with your class two medical. There's also a lot of other uses for a class two, but that's kind of complicated. Class one is where all airline transport pilots have to be. And anybody flying a cargo aircraft or passengers has to have a class one in the United States. This is the highest level they require you to go through these examinations much more frequently than a class two or a class three. And they also check a few more things than they would with a class two or three. Class one also, I mean, it, it examines things like this, like mental health. Mental it, examines, health yeah. it examines eyesight, obviously. It examines weight and health conditions, heart conditions, anything you know, any kind of medications you're taking. And they're pretty strict because you're in charge of an airplane with people or people, expensive yeah. cargo and they're large machines. Yeah. So it's important to have that. You cannot operate heavy machinery. If that is on your medication, you right. cannot fly an airplane. <laughs> right. Well, and that's just it. So that's why in aviation, it makes a lot more sense to have certificates rather than licenses, licenses because licenses expire. Certificates do not. So, but they still require upkeep, but it's a lot more complicated upkeep than a license. A license, like your driver's license, you renew once every so often. Meanwhile, with a certificate, like an airline transport certificate, for these pilots, you have to have a certain number of things in place for that certificate to be legal at any given moment. If any one of those pieces is not in place, it is not a valid certificate at that time. That doesn't mean it's not something you can't get fixed and then have that certificate still in place. It just means that at that time you could not fly with that certificate and be legal. Right. You could still fly a small airplane for fun, but you cannot fly passengers. So if the medical, if your medical expires or some limitations put on there that says you can't fly your, with your ATP certificate at that time, that's a piece that's in place. Like you, you, it stops you from flying with that certificate. It is not legal. Right. And that's what happened here. Yes. From July 2009, the co-pilot's medical certificate was endorsed with the note, note the special conditions slash restrictions of the waiver FRA 091-09 REV, which just, that's the waiver that they put sure. on his medical certificate. The co-pilot's MPLA issued on- Multi-crew pilot license. Yes. Issued on February 2014 was endorsed with the remark, sick inclusion people, which m meant he was- it was like the, the part of the waiver that we talked about that was put on his license. Yeah. The co-pilot class one medical certificate was regularly revalidated or renewed from 2010 to 2014 at the Lufthansa AMAC. Which is the Aero Medical Evaluation Center. Yes. All the AIMS who examined, which is the aeromedical examiner. People, yeah. Yes. Yep. Who examined him during the period were aware of the waiver that was put on his medical certificate and his history of depression. So they were all aware that he had a history of depression, that he had this waiver. The waiver that was put on his medical license neither included the requirement for regular specific assessments by a psychiatrist or reduced the time in between two assessments. There, there was nothing saying that he had to get evaluated more often. Or that he 
couldn't get evaluated more often. Yeah. So there was no restriction. He could get evaluated 10 times or not evaluated at all. No psychiatrist or psychologist was involved in the co-pilot's class one medical certificate revalidation slash renewal process after the issuance of the waiver on his medical certificate. So he actually never got anything. There was never a specific professional involved in mental health for his medical exams for the airline. Right. Right. But it was it was just the generic aeromedical examiner who was making these about and they're qualified to an extent to make these evaluations. Yes. Right. But he really should have saw a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Yep. And, and he, he did. Didn't. Well he did. But not as part of the medical exam for his airworthiness essentially. Right. Right. Also, quick note, we did put the dog behind the gate, so if you hear some whining, it's cause he's being a butt. Yes. And he is fine. He just can't see us, so he's going to act like a butt. Yes, he's just going to be a butt. The co-pilot had a loss of license insurance that would have given him a one-time payment of about 60,000 euros, which corresponds approximately to his pilot training expenses, but he did not have any additional insurance covering the risk of loss of income resulting from the unfitness to fly. So he did have the insurance that would cover the loan he had but he had no other way of having income of having to live basically right and then last one for this section peer support groups were available to german wing pilots but he didn't never, use them he didn't use them the next part of the findings is relevant to the period of time between december 2014 and the day of the crash so the co-pilot suffered from a mental disorder with the psychotic symptoms antidepressant and sleeping aid medication were prescribed to the co-pilot and the co-pilot did not contact any AME, aeromedical examiner. I have a question. Yeah. So the psychotic symptoms that you're referring to, just to clarify, that's the eye? Yeah. The eye stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like him thinking that he's losing his eyesight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even though in eye examinations, they found nothing. Yeah. He had well, yeah. pretty yeah. close to perfect vision. He didn't even yeah. have to wear glasses. Cool. I'm just making sure right. I'm on the same page. Yes. 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 I mean, as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is also the section I compressed a few of these together because they were like, why do I have to put separate ones for all of them? A private physician referred the co-pilot to a psychotherapist and psychiatrist one month before the accident and diagnosed a possible psychosis two weeks before the accident. So they knew uh-huh. <laughs> he was having problems mm-hmm. and they're like, you should see a psychotherapist. You should go to a psychiatrist. And they knew two weeks before the accident that he was in a possible psychosis, which is not great. (laughs) No. The psychiatrist treating the co-pilot prescribed antidepressant medication one month before the accident and other antidepressants along with sleeping aids eight days before the accident. So he was having trouble sleeping and he had to take antidepressants. Although, can we have the conversation that if you're taking antidepressants, I feel like it shouldn't inhibit you to fly completely? It doesn't. And that's why I kind of mentioned it about that list of countries, Australia, UK, Canada, here. I think there was one other. I think there is um, in the recommendations. There's a thing that's like, hey, you shouldn't. There's a list of acceptable medications, including SSRIs. Like I'm taking an SSRI. It might have been just Germany that that was a problem. Yes. And I think they did, the BEA did make a recommendation to the EASA that they should be like, hey, if they need them, they should be able to use them and still fly. It doesn't mean <laughs> you're going to immediately crash the plane. It just means like life sucks a little bit. Like here, here's some aid. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you need a little help and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you should, should be, be able a- to get help. Exactly. Without it risking your entire career. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We were talking about this a little bit before the podcast started, but actually like the whole fear of losing your, losing job. your job over getting mental help. 
is yeah. something that shouldn't be a problem, especially when your job is really important. I mean, when you're in charge of a large metal tube flying through the air at insane rates of speed with lots of people. I also see it as not only a job, but your identity. Yeah. Right. And exactly. It, it sure. makes a lot of sense that this went so deep for this person. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So. I think also, too, in the past 10 years or so, at least here in the United States, there's been more talk about mental health and getting help mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that it's okay to get help. And if you need help, you should get help. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think there's been a lot of good talk about that lately. Especially with the pandemic. Because, I mean, mental health is really important. And I don't think a lot of people talked about it enough. I, I can agree with that. Yeah. yeah and but, I definitely know that there's a stigma about getting help, especially like if you've tried before and it didn't go well the first time. You. Me. Yeah. The help is there and it's really up to you. Yeah. But it shouldn't be a stigma that it's bad to get help. It's mm-hmm. not. Because it sh- it's not. No. Sure. We discussed this at the beginning of the episode, but August will provide some of that material if you do need help and you need somewhere to go or somewhere to be. We will provide that for you guys. And I will also put it on the website in case you need it. Okay, continuing on. No healthcare providers reported any aeromedical conditions to authorities. No aviation authority or any other authority was informed of the mental state of the co-pilot. And then this section of the findings, we're almost done with findings, by the way. This section of the findings is relevant to the second flight of the day of the accident flight. So they had findings for the first half of the day where I was like... It was basically he did a dry run and it was sketchy and I hate it. Oh my god, that's so scary. Yeah. But the findings didn't have really much to do with the actual... Can you imagine if you were on that first flight? Ooh. No. I'm using a lot of grounding skills right <laughs> Yeah. Because, oh, this is heavy stuff. It is. Okay. During the descent, the Marseille Control Center called German Wings on 11 occasions on three different frequencies without any answer being transmitted. So they called, they tried, which yeah. is their job, right? Yeah. It's yep. they're, trying to, they're trying to make sure that, hey, what's going on? They did their job. I... To be perfectly honest, I'm kind of surprised they didn't scramble fighter jets. Actually, they did. They, uh, they yep. scrambled The French one. military defense system tried to contact German wings on three occasions during the descent without any answer. But so they, they did. They scrambled one. Okay. They sent one fighter jet at 941 when they impacted. Ugh. So it got there at 950. Or it uh, left 1050. It, or yeah, 1050. Sorry. It left UTC. it. It left it. Yeah. UTC times. It, it was scrambled at 1041 about the time they impacted. And then at 1049 is when it actually left. Oh, yeah. Like took off because it took that takes that time to get them yeah. airborne. So it found them at like 1050, 1051, something like that. It was over yeah. to the scene. That's not great. No, air, disaster, they, air disasters did not talk about that. No. One. no and there's not much reason to because it wasn't it was inconsequential. But yes, I mean, yes, the French but, military did try to contact them, is mm-hmm. the point It's there. good to know that step was taken. Yes. Yes. The buzzer to request access to the cockpit sounded once during the descent, four minutes and seven seconds after the captain had left. The intercom sounded in the cockpit four minutes and 40 seconds after the captain had left. Three other calls on the interphone sounded in the cockpit. None of the calls using the interphone elicited any answer. So he just didn't answer any of the requests to get back in the cockpit basically granted we'll never really know exactly what he was doing in the cockpit but the way air disasters depicted it is he was just sitting with his hands on his lap and just staring right which and of course they wouldn't know no no one's gonna know but it's like it makes it that much more eerie because that's probably not far off what 
from what he was doing. Probably. The only thing that was picked up on the CBR was him breathing. Ugh, creepy. Mm -hmm. Noises similar to violent blows on the cockpit doors were recorded on five occasions. The cockpit doors of the aircraft were designed for security reasons to resist penetration by small arms fire and grenade shrapnel and to resist forcible incursions by unauthorized persons. So there was no way, even with the crash acts, that they wouldn't have even been able to get in. Which is kind of the point, um, because there is a crash act. It is in the cabin somewhere. They will never tell you where it is because only the crew should know where it is so that this kind of thing doesn't necessarily happen. Um, but the intention of that axe is if there's fire behind a panel, they can hack it open and get to the fire. It's not meant to get to the cockpit. No. Nope. Right. It was good that he tried. But <laughs> I mean, like, it is good that he tried, but the door did exactly what it was, what supposed, it was supposed to, to do, do, unfortunately, and that is hold up against the crash axe. Yeah. So it it held. Yes. It's a security door for a reason. An input on the right side stick was recorded for about 30 seconds on the FDR, one minute and 33 seconds before the impact. Not enough to disengage the autopilot, though. It was just done. So His hand must have just it. been put on the stick, and he might have just bumped a little, but it didn't do enough to disengage. No. So it was just kind of proof that he was awake and there, like conscious, and he had put his hand on the stick. Yeah. And that's it. That's all they know. Yeah. I hate it. And then last one. The sound of breathing was recorded on the CVR until a few seconds before the end of the flight, before the collision with the terrain. Warnings from the GPWS, Master Caution, and Master Warning sounded. So all of those were going off Yeah, right before they hit the mountain. Causes. That is yes. really what they put. It causes. is the causes section. I saw that. I put the entire thing in here. I'm going to read it verbatim like we usually do. Yep. Yep. The collision with the ground was due to the deliberate and planned action of the co-pilot who decided to commit suicide while alone in the cockpit. The process for medical certification of pilots, in particular self-reporting in case of decrease in medical fitness between two periodic medical evaluations, did not succeed in preventing the co-pilot who was experiencing mental disorder with psychotic symptoms from experiencing the privilege of his license. The following factors may have contributed to the failure of this principle. The co-pilot's probable fear of losing his ability to fly as a professional pilot if he had reported his decrease in medical fitness to an aeromedical officer or examiner. The potential financial consequences generated by the lack of specific insurance covering the risks of loss of income in case of unfitness to fly. And the lack of clear guidance or guidelines in German regulations on when a threat to public safety outweighs the requirements of medical confidentiality. Security requirements led to cockpit doors designed to resist forcible intrusion by unauthorized persons. This made it impossible to enter the flight compartment before the aircraft impacted with the terrain in the French Alps. And that's the cause. Yep. Which that's a lot, but... It's a lot, but... It sums it up pretty I well, I concur actually. with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now are the actions taken after the accident, safety actions that happened before any recommendations came out. Okay. And I, I touch on some points, and then this is where we get to the mandatory reporting part. So there were actions and discussions that took place after the accident. It was mostly about the two-person role in the cockpit. And as we talked about, a lot of companies around the world started to say, hey, we're going to do this. Two people in the cockpit at all times. Yes. So that one person is not completely 
um, alone, alone and in charge of that of the airplane <laughs> with people on it. Right. At any given moment, there's nobody alone in the cockpit. Yeah, while it's flying. And that way no one gets locked out of the cockpit and there's no sense of especially after this, I'm sure there was a bit of like trauma. anxiety, yeah. trauma around mm-hmm. the pilot community on having yes. this happen because he clearly hid this so well because it's uh, I didn't put this in there from the findings, but other people who worked with him didn't. said he was perfectly fine when he was flying. He seemed perfectly fine. So he hid yeah. this mm-hmm. really well. Yeah. And you can't, right? I think there's a lot of people who may have depression and don't know it. Or, I mean, I did that for a while where I was like, I'm not depressed. And I actually was really depressed. <laughs> so I didn't realize it till after the de- like the pre- depressive episode mm-hmm. stopped. Sure. But then you look back at it and you're like, wow. I'm too vocal about myself to hide that kind of stuff. This, I mean, this was years ago. I know. But, but- it, it, I was like in denial about it. And then I realized later, I'm like, no, I was really depressed. So mm-hmm. anyway, there was also a stronger focus on mental illness and getting pilots the help they need. And them talking to aeromedical examiners about that and getting proper help for it instead of the stigma of if you get help, you'll lose your job. Right. And that's a good thing. They need to have that ability to be able to have the mental health yes. piece um, in place. Having more pilot support groups and making sure that they know they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Other pilots experience this too. You need to be able to go and talk to other people about this. I talk like I talk to other teachers all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> burnout all that kind of stuff it happens and even yeah. to some extent like just talking to your peers about some of your stuff that's going on yeah. that is a small amount of therapy that can help yes yep. i'm not saying that replaces therapy but sure. it helps mm-hmm. so and here's where we get into i didn't make any notes about this but we'll talk about it is mandatory reporting so because of the confidentiality requirements in Germany, they didn't mandate report his mental state to the airline. And they didn't have to. They didn't think he was an imminent threat. But if you want to talk a little sure. bit about that, because... Okay. Or, or organizing my thoughts. Yeah. Um, so the basic in therapy or psychiatric relationship, my spiel is what's said here stays here. And that's really important to me. I want you to know that our relationship is safe the way that your documents and your notes are stored is safe. There are a few exceptions to that, to keeping you and the people around you safe. If you would report any suicide ideation, we would have a discussion about that. When I would need to make a report is when you tell me you have a plan, means, intent, and access to the means. Means being some sort of weapon. Yeah. This case, an airplane. Yeah. And so, and I'll say things like, say we hang up right now, or you leave right now. How safe do you feel? And someone will say, well, I'm just, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know what to do. Then I'm starting to think, hey, this is something that I need to call the EMTs for. There's also when you express a harm to hurt someone else. That's a type of reporting that started with the Tarasov case in the 1970s. I don't, don't know how familiar I you are with that. I have no oh, idea what okay. you're talking about. Not so, familiar with that one. Got it. So, so that's the duty to warn a person that your client is making threats against them. Right. And okay. so the basic idea of that case was that this was a college student made a threat towards, I think, a, a girlfriend or, or an ex-girlfriend. The the therapist reported it to the campus police. The campus police confronted him and he said, I never said anything like that and proceeded to kill his girlfriend. 
And so the idea then is, is you're you're not just reporting it to to some other authority en- entity, right? Yeah. But then the actual person you, that you, you are making threats. You are against. telling the actual person, right? Right. right. When when you asked me to do this podcast, I, I was I was thinking a lot about reporting because as therapists. When we report, we are breaking con- confidentiality. Confidentiality, obviously, it's a big yeah. freaking deal. It is. So yeah. we take all the steps that we can not to, mm-hmm. and that's in the use of safety plans, clients pulling in resources. I've brought in loved ones, friends. You know, if I can get a release sign, that I'm talking to them. And it's also super, super, super important to report when you get that information. Yeah. yeah. What's tricky about this particular case is that. If a pilot came to me and said, hey, I'm having these thoughts, I would do a safety check with him. So I would be asking, how safe do you feel? And I do a scaling question from zero to 10. Zero being no suicidality whatsoever. 10 being suicidality with means, plan, intent, and you're going to do it no matter what I say as soon as you leave or in the near future. That scale helps me a lot. I have clients who have chronic suicidality, and I ask them that question every single session. Mm -hmm. So what's tricky about this so, A, it's in Germany, which I cannot tell you anything about. Right, yeah, that's well. fair. Yeah. So here, if he was reporting to me suicidality, not specifying the means or intent, I would probably call EMS. And the reason you call EMS is, and not the police is that, is that the police can be super triggering to clients and escalating. Yep. Yeah, sure. Now, if you are worried about safety, obviously, your safety or the client's ability to keep themselves safe when EMS arrives, then you make a judgment call, obviously. So if the pilot said I'm actively suicidal, nothing you say is going to stop me. I've got this plan that I plan to carry out. So then I'm saying, okay, this sounds like an EMS call. If the pilot tells me my intention is to crash a plane full of people, then to me, that's an airline call. Yeah. That's an employer call because then there are specific people who would be killed and I have to let them know. When I do a suicide assessment, I'm checking everything. I'm checking plans. Do you have a plan? Some some folks say things like, you know, I've always got this plan in the back of my mind, but I have no intention to act on it. So if the client said to me, I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to kill myself by diving the plane into the Swiss mountains. And I would say, okay, I need to report this and I'm going to call your employer for the purpose of keeping other people safe. He's under no obligation to tell me any of this. Right. And that direct slash limits who I report and how I report to. Yeah. The other thing is that I don't report in a vacuum. I have folks that I consult with. I have therapist friends. Okay. So I'm so I'm always checking in with with other people. This so it's is, not like you have to make the decision to report alone. Like you can no. you can you have the resources to reach out, always. get other opinions. Always. Absolutely. Yep. And in situations like this, I mean, <laughs> does confidentiality apply in that scenario? So, say you consult it's, with a colleague. It does. Okay. It's well, yes, in quotes. In like, my disclosure, I say that I consult with colleagues. Colleagues, yes. And so, I am covered to talk to my colleagues and say, "Hey, therapist buddy, what do you think about this scenario?" If I don't have my license yet and I'm being supervised, that I'm consulting with a supervisor whose license I'm practicing under, and they're and they are going to tell me specifically what, yeah, what, right, what to do. Clients who are suicidal will tell therapists because they don't want to kill themselves. Most will. Folks who are telling therapists are least likely to act on it because the folks who kill themselves often don't tell anyone at all because they don't want anyone to stop them from doing them. it. Right. Yeah. right. Now, this is obviously not 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 the case in all cases. This yeah. this uh, person's an yeah. obvious example of that. And I had a colleague who lost a client to suicide about a month ago. Reporting, assessing risk is... 
are really, I mean, you know this as a teacher, you know, is like you the have to crappiest bring. part of our yeah. job. Yeah. Well, um, I have, I can't even like, I can't consult with anybody. If I think it's a threat or mm-hmm. they're in trouble or I literally have to drop everything, have someone cover my yep. class and I have to call yep. a report yep. or I get in trouble. It, right. Right. So it, it, mandatory reporting is really, really hard because you also don't want to make it seem like they're getting in trouble. Like it's yeah. like you're not in trouble. I just need to make sure you're OK. And in right. my case, like if a, if a child gets taken away from a parent, yeah. that's really hard. And then they're like, well, why did you do that? Oh, Which yeah. is why I always tell them, if you're going to tell me something, make sure you really want to tell me. Because if you're getting hurt or if someone's you're hurting yourself for whatever, I have to tell somebody. <laughs> I, have, I have clients who say there's something that happened, but I don't want to tell you because I don't want you to tell anybody. And I'm like, fair enough. Let me figure out how I can help you the best I can yeah. mm-hmm. so- without you telling me this. We, we talked about how those who are going to do it won't tell you. At what point do you make the intuitive leap of, I have this patient who is a pilot, and I think they might be suicidal, but they haven't told me, do I tell someone? So the first thing I would do is consult, consult, consult. Because the tricky thing is if you don't have evidence and you can't document evidence in your notes, right. if, if you call someone and that person gets upset at you and files a grievance or a lawsuit, yeah. they yep. are, you know, the yeah. first thing that's looked at are my notes. So it's it's really, 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 really tricky because this gets, and in no way am I saying all these therapists and providers were terrible or this person was terrible. Like it's such a nuanced situation. It's a system thing. Well, it's a system thing. And like I said earlier, this is layered and mm-hmm. really, really complex. I guess that's what I mean by system. It's like each... There's a different level in each. Yeah. Thing. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. There, there's like a thousand decision points. I think what's it that that we are really bound by like the limits of our profession and, and the legalities of our profession. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, if if I if I have a bad feeling about something, unless I can back it up, I can't really do anything about it. I've had that in. With, <laughs> I'm thinking of a client in a client in particular that I worked with in the past. It was infuriating because I knew something was going on, but you know, you know, from 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 observances, kind of putting puzzle pieces together, but there wasn't any documentation yeah. to back up me, like putting this person on hold. So it's really, really tricky stuff. So my my heart goes out both to this person who didn't get the help they needed, and to the providers trying to navigate this. Because if in Germany you've got ironclad confidentiality rules, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If you want to keep your job, you're well. And yeah. Not even to say that he even told any of these professionals he was having suicide ideation like if he never said anything there's nothing they can do so it's one of those where he might have tried to get a new diagnosis so he could keep flying so in the case of a client like this they have clear signs of psychosis is that going to be something that's a factor well in the aviation industry for example can they put regulations that say any pilot that reaches out and has symptoms of psychosis, it has mm-hmm. to be mandatorily reported to an employer. Is that something it that sounds can like, happen? Because what I'm picking up right now is like mandatory reporting, like he's going to kill himself, he's going to kill someone in a plane, et cetera, and so forth. Right. But I mean, a pilot should not be flying with psychosis, it should not be flying while taking antipsychotic medication. Specifically, like, do you, I mean, like, do you as a mental health professional, knowing these things, 
reach out to the FAA medical office? Do you reach out to the FAA? Do you reach out to the airline? Like, I know these things about this individual and they should not be flying, but they are flying. For me as a therapist, not an aviation person. Like, so there's, there's that layer of this (laughs) to that. Yep. Yep. Um, That's okay. There's, there's also this piece of, I have very specific times that I can report. Yeah. At face value, this example here, this person has psychosis. I would need some really clear evidence that would say, this is a reason why I need to break this person's trust and confidentiality. Yeah. I'm skirting around this question because yep. what I would do is <laughs> it get, is a difficult one. Well, it's difficult. I would talk to my lawyer. I would talk to my colleagues yeah. because I see the different sides of this. The other thing about psychosis is it's really, really tricky. Yeah. Having psychosis, like psychosis develops, psychosis changes. Yeah. It, you know, if, if if you have visual hallucinations versus auditory hallucinations, whether you have delusions, all of it's 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 just super, super layered. So I'm 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 hesitant to go on the record. This is totally fair. I'm not asking sure. you for like a clear cut answer. Okay, either. good, because you're not gonna get one. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess just... more of my question is like, what do you do? And you would consult. Yeah, I would I, I would be talking to my lawyer, I would be talking to my colleagues, and then I would figure out like where my options are. Given my concerns versus right. what we know are, 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 are the things that I have to do. Okay. And the, the really complicated part of this is like he was put on sick leave that he didn't take. Yeah. Mm. And if you don't know that he didn't take that sick leave. How do you evaluate? Evaluate. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a piece of this puzzle that ultimately I don't see a fix for. And that is when the patient themselves... Mm-hmm. is supposed to take that sick leave, is supposed to tell their employer these problems. Mm-hmm. The, you can't rely on the therapist to tell them. They, they legally can't exactly in Germany. So, and, and even, you know, here. Well, and we but, can't hear on, right, unless here there's, as well. you, you know, means. Exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. All the things. And so even more so at the time in Germany, they couldn't. So there's that piece where it's like, you know, you can't force that patient to do anything, but they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that came I don't I don't remember this from the air disasters episode because it was so long since I've I've watched <laughs> it was, it. The, it was the first season ago. you watched yeah years yeah. ago but I don't know if the co-pilot's family tried to sue or from anything what I understand the pilot's family did not believe that he caused the accident to no. this day they do not believe that he was depressed enough to cause the accident so yes they tried some legal action but unfortunately, it is not really a ground they have to stand on. Yeah. So that's a tricky one. Yeah. But from that's my understanding, anyways. I don't. I'm not, I can't speak for them. Well, and they the would truth. lose ultimately because of the confidentiality rules. And if he never told them about his suicide ideation, mm-hmm. and they thought he was taking sick leave and all this other stuff, there would be no reason for them to report to the airline that he was a danger anyway. Right. Okay, so, so I have some stuff from the Wikipedia page, obviously the most reliable, reliable of sources. sources. Yeah. On the second anniversary of the crash, the Lubitz family held a press conference... Lubitz's father said that they did not accept the official investigative findings that Andreas Lubitz deliberately caused the crash or that he had been depressed at the time. They presented aviation journalist Tim Van Beveren, 
whom they had commissioned to publish a new report which asserted that Lubitz could have fallen unconscious, that the cockpit door lock had malfunctioned on previous flights, and that potentially dangerous turbulence had been reported in the area on the day of the crash. The timing of the press conference by Lubitz's father on the anniversary was criticized by families of victims who were holding their own remembrances that day. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, there is. That's that's a lot. And unfortunately, once they had the FDR data, you can't fight that. No. He changed the altitude. Yeah. And he changed the speed. A. B. Turbulence would have shown up on the FDR. Yes. yes. And it just doesn't cause the airplane to start descending in a controlled descent. C. He didn't answer any of the calls on the interphone or the radio. Right. Even if he was unconscious... He set the altitude. Right. Yeah. There's too many signs that he was not unconscious. Yeah. He And he put, put his, his hand on the stick. He put his hand on the stick. He was making conscious decisions on speed and altitude. He was breathing. There was even at one point they noted the sound of him moving the seat because it's an electronic. Oh, yeah. Like like your seat. car. Like, yeah. It, it made the sounds of him like moving the seat even at one point after that captain left the cockpit and i mean it was within seconds of the captain leaving the cockpit that he set it to 100 feet he put the descent setting in yeah i'm going to also read this section because i will forget it later because i have adhd (laughs) but it is relevant not to this section but overall it is compensation and litigation German Wings parent company Lufthansa offered victims' families an initial aid payment of up to 50,000 euros, separate from any legally required compensation for the disaster. Elmar Giemula, a professor of aviation law at the Technical University of Berlin, quoted by the something post, I'm not going to try to pronounce that German thing, <laughs> said he expected the airline would pay a total of 10 to 30 million euros in compensation. The Montreal Convention set up a per-victim cap of 143,000 euros in the event an airline is held liable unless negligence can be proven. Insurance specialists said although co-pilot hid a serious illness from his employer and deliberately crashed the passenger aircraft, these facts would not affect the issue of compensation nor be applicable to the exclusion clause in Lufthansa's insurance policy. Lufthansa's insurance company set aside $300 million or 280 million euros for financial compensation to victims' families and for the cost of the aircraft. As of February 2017, Lufthansa had paid 75,000 euros to the family of every victim, as well as 10,000 euros in pain and suffering compensation to every close relative of a victim. Wow. Victim families sued the Lufthansa Airline Training Center in Arizona, which he did go fly at, in order to obtain higher compensation, but the case was reverted to German courts in March 2017. In July 2020 recent, a court in Essen ruled against several victim families, holding that neither Lufthansa nor the training center in Arizona could be held liable. Flight doctors who may have negligently authorized Lubitz to fly were working on behalf of the German government's flight authority, the Luftfahrt. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably right. This is great. That's probably right. (laughs) Bundesamt? Something. The ruling was upheld on appeal in September of 2021. So that's where things stand currently. Things may have changed by the time you hear this message. And fortunately, I believe that the airline and the training center are not liable. No. No. Absolutely not. They didn't know. No. And they if he know. never told them, how would they know? Right. They didn't know. And if no one told them, how would they know? Right. They wouldn't. This That's seems the mostly like a reporting policy issue. Yeah. Yes. When I it agree. all boils down to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it. And this is a hard thing to fight, but having the two people in the cockpit also definitely mm-hmm. helps. It helps. Yeah. Big time. Sorry. Continue All right. with your recommendations. Official. Yes. So the first one has to do with medical evaluation of pilots with medical health issues. 
They recommended the EASA require that when a classroom medical certificate is issued to an applicant with a history of psychological slash psychiatric trouble of any sort, conditions for the follow-up of his or her fitness to fly to be defined. This may include restrictions on the duration of the certificate or other operational limitations and the need for a specific psychiatric evaluation or subsequent revalidations or renewals. So if they know there's a problem, they need to make sure that the it's noted. They get reevaluated by an actual professional right, that can and gets reevaluate them. Yep. Yeah. The second one has to do with routine analysis of in-flight incapacitation. So the, they recommend the EASA include in the European Plan for Aviation Safety an action for the EU member states to perform a routine analysis of in-flight incapacitation with particular reference but not limited to psychological or psychiatric issues to help with continuous reevaluation of medical assessment criteria to improve the expression of risk of in-flight incapacitation in numerical terms and to engage data collection to validate the effectiveness of these criteria. Okay, so... I kind of skipped over part of this because I didn't really think it would come up and it just came up. (laughs) So part of the risk analysis for in-flight incapacitation is what's called a 1% rule. Right. And they figure that mental health incapacitation in the cockpit happens at a far less rate than that. What they estimate to be 0.01%. But that doesn't mean, A, you can discount it. Mm -hmm. B, you have to evaluate it differently. Yeah. Because if you're incapacitated in flight physically it's going to be like okay you got scramble fighter jets here's what you like sure no no one's there right when someone is incapacitated psychologically they are still there right and they can cause harm Mm -hmm. they had proven in previous flights that had someone attempting to crash the plane that having a second person there doesn't necessarily always prevent the suicide no I guess it would be helpful in prevention. Yeah. So we, you and I know that if someone is trying to control the plane one way and you realize that they're trying to crash the plane and you try to do it the other way. It cancels out. They're in. It cancels out yeah. and it doesn't prevent whatever they're trying to do necessarily. No, but it, it gives you more time to figure yes. out how to. Yeah. But it's like, what, how do you evaluate that risk? I don't know. I'm not a professional, right. but it's, it's a whole different kind of playing field. In terms of, quote-unquote, incapacitation. Well, and that's what they're saying here. It's like, figure out a way to evaluate this. Because this is obviously a very real risk, even though it's 0.01% of the time. Right. Right. Just because it doesn't happen often doesn't mean... It doesn't doesn't happen at all. ...consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another recommendation for that. They recommend the EASA, in coordination with the network of analysis, perform routine analysis of in-flight incapacitation with particular reference, but not limited to psychological or psychiatric issues. To help with conditions or continuous reevaluation of the medical assessment criteria to improve the expression of risk of in flight incapacitation or numerical terms and to engage data collection to validate the effectiveness of these criteria. So, uh, basically, uh, similar to yeah. what I just said, they put it in there twice. I'm not quite sure why, but it's basically just to make sure that they know the criteria and they know how to reevaluate it. I think more of what that's getting at is, like, get the data for it. Yes. You can't act without data. I constantly at work have data, 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 data. Data. Yep. You need you need yep. proof. Yep. You need some sort you of need something, physical proof. You need quantitative data. Right. A lot of times. Qualitative can work sometimes. But in a lot of these, like, 
aviation fields particularly it's quantitative quantitative yep although like your notes being a therapist exactly. qualitative data like you need data you need proof you need to be able to back up the actions you take right is basically what it comes down to yeah all right so the next one is on mitigation of the consequence of loss of license so they recommend the EASA ensure that European operations include in their management systems measures to mitigate social economic risks related to the loss of license by one of their pilots for medical reasons. So make sure they have means to survive if their license is revoked and they need to go into some other thing. Like if you to live. In most jobs, if you get injured on the job, you have short term disability. Or workers', workers compensation, yeah. yeah. So it Having something, not necessarily that particular institution, but something to the effect where if a pilot loses his license, either temporary, temporarily or permanently, have something in place so they can continue living. Yes. And then they recommend to the IATA to encourage its member airlines to implement measures to mitigate the socioeconomic risks related to pilots' loss of license for medical reasons. So the same thing. So worldwide. Airlines. Yes. The next one's about antidepressant medication and flying status. Hey, hey. So they recommend to the EASA define the modalities under which EU regulations should allow pilots to be declared fit to fly while taking antidepressant medication under medical mm -hmm. supervision. Mm -hmm. So this is pretty much like, look at what these countries are doing. Do that. And do it. Because, <laughs> again, as we talked about, it's probably better that they take the medication and they fly because they're less likely to be depressed. Studies have shown it. Rather than... Punishing them for taking medication. 100%. And then they do something like this because they're just that depressed or they're not getting enough help or whatever. Or they uh, think they're going to lose their job. Or Right. And this – it's really interesting because this scenario goes beyond basic depression. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here mulling over the psychotic features of it. An antidepressant isn't just going to help a client like this because they're also right. going to yeah. need some sort of antipsychotic or – if it's found to be some other type of thing, not the expert at all on this on this right. particular client. But I mean, so it makes a lot of sense not to punish pilots for medication that helps them do their job better. Yeah. Right. Anti-anxiety, anti-depression. It's not necessarily as like this particular individual. Okay, but good. It's like, so I'm like, just an antidepressant is no, not, it's not really going to do it for this it's, person. It's more of yeah. this instance revealed a systemic yes. problem. Especially Huge. with German Airlines specifically, but other places in the EU yeah. where they were punishing pilots for taking medication. Exactly. Because as we know from previous episodes that we've talked about, sometimes certain medications get abused or they put you in a weird Awkward state of state. mind so you shouldn't be flying, which is why that policy is in place. But it should also include things like antidepressants. Why should that be on the list? Mm -hmm. You know, like And if if they're so concerned about it, like put in dosage recommendations week. yeah like if they do for pay meds yeah like advil and tylenol and stuff because you're allowed to take those and fly yeah but obviously there's extremes so it's like put a cap on it if it makes you feel better yeah but at least allow it in some capacity right because again if it helps them do their job and why would you keep them from taking it and you don't need to throw away someone's entire career just because they're taking antidepressants yeah even an antipsychotic, I mean, to a certain extent. Yeah, to an extent. Like, Dude, right. I mean, psychosis is not an area that I'm an expert in by any means. And I've worked with 
a lot of clients experiencing psychosis and it's a it's a much more nuanced mm-hmm. issue than depression but still you, you know like where where can allowances be made to include mental health medication what yeah. makes sense what doesn't make sense right mm-hmm. all right this next one is a big one the balance between medical confidentiality and public safety absolutely and there's three different recommendations on this so we'll wait to make comments till the end because it's a lot so the first one is they recommend the world health organization develop guidelines for its member states in order to help them define clear rules to require healthcare providers to inform the appropriate authorities when a specific patient's health is very likely to impact public safety, including when the patient refuses to consent without legal risk to the healthcare provider while still protecting patients' private data from unnecessary disclosure. So keeping some confidentiality, but also making sure that when people need to know, they know. Uh, They recommend the European Commission, in coordination with EU member states, define clear rules to require health care providers to inform the appropriate authorities when a specific patient's health is very likely to impact public safety, including when the patient refuses to consent without legal risk of the health care provider, while still protecting patients' private data from unnecessary disclosure. These rules should take into account the specificities of pilots for whom the risk of losing their medical certificate being not only a financial matter, but also a matter related to their passion for flying, may deter them from seeking appropriate health care. Exactly. Which is a huge problem. I'm not going to say that pilots have an ego. (laughs) But also. They're like trumpet players. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the ego uh, that's allegedly not there is definitely a factor. I was laughing because that's what my cousin told me on the phone (laughs) today about, like... The pilot ego, which and, and for me, what it just boils down to is their identity. Yes, yeah. And, and when you take that away, obviously, we- being a pilot is prestigious. It takes a lot. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot there. of. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of leadership, and all these sorts of things. And you absorb that into part of your psyche. It has to be a lifestyle because I mean it. It, it is a lifestyle. Well, it is a lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, lifestyle. It, it entirely influences your your work-life balance is very different from most people's because you're not home every day but then you're also home for long periods of time it changes your whole psychology about kind of how you live your life yeah and the risk of losing that is literally losing a way of life yes. so it becomes a factor in seeking mental health care yes if i could put in a quick mental health plug yes that loss of identity is the theme that i see all the time mm-hmm. like and from from things like kids flying the nest or becoming a parent for the first time to losing the ability to be in a particular career or a particular home. Mm-hmm. I mean, identity is massive in therapy because if you walk away from something feeling like you've lost a part of yourself, it's just, it's just really terrible. Yeah. So yeah. I absolutely do not condone what this person did. And I, I can see the desperation. Like I, I can feel empathy for their desperation. Right. Um, I do not, have empathy, obviously, for what they did and the choices they made, because that was horrific. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the last one. <laughs> yeah, you said we were going to wait to talk about these. That's okay. <laughs> we're bad. It's okay. That's right. It's okay. Without waiting for action for the EU level, the BM6 and the BAK edit guidelines for all German healthcare providers too. Remind them of the possibility of breaching medical confidentiality and reporting to the LBA or another appropriate authority if the health of a commercial pilot presents a potential public safety risk. 
define what can be considered as imminent danger, mm-hmm. in quotes, and the, in quotes, threat to public safety when dealing with pilots' health issues, which is really important, right? Because they're in charge of other people. We talk about this all the time. When you're a pilot, you're in charge of other people's lives. <laughs> if you crash that plane, hundreds of people could die. So you need to make sure they're not going to purposefully crash an airplane. Yes, of you course. Know? And if you think that they're going to do that, you tell somebody. Yeah. Even yeah. if it breaks confidentiality law, which, again, we talked about was pretty strict in Germany. And then yeah. last point on that, limit the legal consequence for healthcare providers breaching yes. medical confidentiality in good faith to lessen or prevent a threat to public safety. Professionals should not have to worry about losing their jobs by doing their job. <laughs> this yeah. happens... Literally, teachers, therapists, doctors, a bunch of people that have to do with confidentiality. Yep. I mean, constantly. Littlest thing can cause you to lose your job. And there has to be instances where there, there needs to be protection. Sa- fail safes in place. So if you do need to make a comment or report something, you're not going to get fired. That is such a tightrope. And I, I feel for you. And I feel for both of you. For both of you, yeah. <laughs> Because there's consequences for reporting when you're not supposed to, and there's consequences for not reporting when you're supposed to. And that is hard. Yeah. It's hard to walk that line. And we're not even touching, like, the teacher-student relationship, the therapist-client relationship, and how damaged that can get. That's a whole other thing of how do you report conscientiously, knowing that sometimes shirt's just going to go down after you report, and that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. But here, that's obviously not an issue, because it's about safety versus Public safety. safety. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. And then the last recommendation, this has to do with the promotion of pilot support programs. They recommend the EASA ensure that European operators promote the implementation of peer support groups to provide a process for pilots, their families and peers to report and discuss personal and mental health issues with the assurance that information will be kept in confidence in a just culture work environment and that pilots will be supported as well as guided with the aim of providing them with help, ensuring flight safety and allowing them to return to flying duties more applicable. Kind of like any kind of support group, AA, Gamblers Anonymous, that kind of thing, where you have a support system behind you, where you can talk about your problems, but it stays anonymous. So you can't get fired for it. You can't get fired for using it, but you're getting the help from peers that have experienced something similar. I sent August a couple of sections to cover from this report, and this was one of them. Do you want to speak to that? Okay. Um, <laughs> specifically EAPs. EAPs, yes. I was okay, just going to talk about this. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, uh, you sent me, they were very tiny. I was just going to um, talk about this, as a matter of fact. I'll, you, you can pitch in for sure if there's somewhere that I'm missing. Sure, sure. Um, okay. So EAPs are employment assistance programs. These are therapy sessions that are offered to you by your employer. And usually there's a cap of somewhere like six to eight or a max of 12 or something. Mm. This is really nice because it's, it's easy to access. They're typically, I don't don't even think there's a copay usually with with EAP. You used yours, right? I I never did, but I didn't know what I know about them from both my previous employer and my current employer is that, yeah, they're entirely part of your benefits program. You don't pay for any of it. It is all part of it. And you exactly. get a certain number of sessions per, per year, instant. Yeah. Or, or, or they call it per instance, right? Yeah. right? Per whatever is occurring, basically. 
EAPs are difficult only in that a lot of folks don't trust that their information won't be kept from their employer. Yeah. Right. right. My understanding, my limited understanding as someone who does not deal with EAPs on a regular basis is that they are fully confidential from your employer. Right. They try to make that relatively clear these days because the ones that I've seen, like I said, both my previous employer and this employer mm-hmm. that I've read, is it says like fully confidential. Same. Just the help when you need it. Yeah. And I I think that's accurate. And and I think that there's a widely held fear that it won't be. And I think that's why mental health awareness is so important. Yes. Here are the resources. Here is where, who your information will not be shared with. Right. The, this is when it will have to be shared. Right. When you're, Absolutely. it's an imminent danger or risks to public health is to, one of them. To yourself or others. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 In, exactly. in this instance, I guess. But I, oh, sure. Yeah. I think they're really valuable these days because for one, like I said, it is usually paid for by your benefits. Mm-hmm. And so it's free to you. But also it's that kind of earliest way that you can prevent yourself from getting worse in a mental health state. Like, you know, that you might not have easy access or know how to get Mm -hmm. easy access to mental health situations. But that one provided by most employers and also being publicized, I think, is kind of that first line of Mm -hmm. defense in letting a mental health crisis get worse. Absolutely. For you. Absolutely. And so I think they're really beneficial to me. In my opinion, anyways, they're super beneficial and they should be promoted Absolutely. more throughout the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think making clear to folks how their information is used in an EAP yes. is also vital. Very much. As so. even though we know it's not the case that your information isn't shared, a lot of folks hold that fear so they don't use them. And Right. You know, right. I, yep. I, that sort of thing. I agree. Wow. Is there anything else? Did you have um, anything else? The mental health resources. Oh, yes. 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 So Please. if you are experiencing a crisis, there is. Colorado Crisis Services. They have walk-in walk-in centers all over the state. You can call them toll-free at 1-844-493-8255. You can text them. They also have a website with the live chat. Their website is coloradocrisisservices.org. Is that limited to Colorado residents? It is not. You can call that number anywhere. Oh, yeah. So and I'm pretty sure, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other states that do similar things. I would hope so. The, this is relatively new. Like sure. in the last, mm, just last decade, the, nice. this has been yeah. an option, which, which is really, really cool. No, that is. I've had clients who are afraid to use it because they don't want to give their name or their address in the case they have an ambulance sent to them. Oh. Fair. And you, you are under no obligation to give a name or an address when you call them. I think this is really important. Yeah. That if you need to call and just have someone talk you off of a cliff, you don't have to give them your information. information. Right. In no identifying order, information. In order to get help. Right. So please call. If you are looking for a therapist, there are a couple different places you can start. Community mental health centers can be a great place to start. They usually accept a variety of insurances, including Medicaid. Psychology Today is a resource that I think you can access across the country. You can put mm-hmm. in your insurance type, any specialties that you would like your therapist to have. You can. Mm-hmm. I did that. You can select <laughs> yeah. gender. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's really cool. The tricky thing right now is with the pandemic, most therapists, me included. Booked. Booked out. I'm not really accepting new clients. I have a wait list. So that, I mean, I want to acknowledge the difficulty that that puts clients in because the hardest thing to do at times is just to pick up that phone, send that first email. And it's a lot trickier when you email five people and 
most, if not all of them, aren't accepting clients. Right. It's a lot of work and it's really hard. Right. Calling the crisis service, even for resources, is okay. If someone you love is experiencing a crisis, you can call them and get help on how to handle it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So there are suicide hotlines. There are hotlines for various identities and conditions as well. There are a lot of resources. If anyone listening is having a hard time, I know it's a big deal to ask for help. And I know it's really, really hard. And it's one of the best things to do. Yeah. And being totally open too. that honestly, because I didn't know like easy ways to find these resources myself, mm-hmm. literally like I was, I was doing a doctor visit for something else entirely. And I like, they were like, well, do you have any other questions? And it was just like mental health professionals. Where do I go about that? And they were like, well, look, yeah. we have somebody internal to put you in touch with. And then from there, Put you in touch with many other people. I, uh, talking okay. to your primary care provider, they, yeah. Yeah. they they can screen you for basic depression and anxiety. Right. Primary care providers can generally provide a really basic low dose of an anti-anxiety or antidepressant. Yeah. That's what mm-hmm. I and, did. <laughs> and, and if you have a case that's not just basic, air quotes here, basic depression or anxiety, they can refer you to a psychiatrist. They can also connect you to a mental health system through through insurance. There are lots of sliding scale clinics in the area as well. Do a Google search. Yep. It's really important that you get the help you need. I went to yeah. my primary care provider first, which was through Kaiser. And they're like, yeah, all our therapists are book solid. So we're <laughs> referring you to Sondermind. And that's where oh, I Sondermind. found- Oh, Sondermind. Yeah. I have an amazing therapist. I love him. I was able to basically say, I am LGBTQ. I am this. I am that. I think I might have autism. I might have ADHD. And they're like, here's your person. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Online. Also, there's other online ways to hook up with a therapist that are relatively inexpensive. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of them right now and I can't Cerebral, BetterHelp. BetterHelp, better yeah. That's the one that everybody um, kind of hears these days. Because yeah. it's I hear about that one like around the world. BetterHelp is yeah. really well, got itself in every corner now. And if you want self-help options, there's an app called Calm, which mm-hmm. has a lot of breathing exercises, meditations. It might sound dumb. It definitely sounded dumb to me when my first therapist said to do that granted that didn't go well but breathing and grounding exercises help a lot until you're at the point of like i'm in a panic attack and then it's like if you're having those you should really see a professional mm-hmm. sure that was the point where i was like i need to see a professional because breathing and grounding is not doing it anymore. exactly i mean the four things that you can do for your mental health that don't have any side effects diet exercise sleep and that's not going to cure depression. It's not right. going to cure anxiety. Right. So these are really great things to do. They can help you feel better. And when that's not working, definitely reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's it. Okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was German Wings Flight 9525? Correct. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you need help, please reach out. I will have, I will put a lot of these resources on the website. It should be a link. You can go straight to it. Again, you can also go to your primary care physician, too. They can also help you, especially if you're in the United States and you don't have universal health care. They usually (laughs) know places that will take your insurance, too, that if they don't have an in-house person that can provide it for you, they can find someone who will take Mm -hmm. your insurance. Mm -hmm. They're usually pretty good about doing that. I did that with my brothers years ago. So just so that you're aware if you're in a place that doesn't have universal health care and you have to pay for therapy, that is an option. 
All right. Thank you so much for listening. Sorry, this was a very heavy episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, long. August, for being here. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate you so much for helping out with that. Because there was, was good. so much stuff that we couldn't yeah. see to that we were like, eh. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, We're going to post episode now. Thank you to all our patrons for being awesome and amazing. And if you want to look up the Patreon, again, you can go to the website. You can also just go to Patreon and look us up. We pull right up. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.